Thank you for joining us for another episode of Vermont Ed Reads. This time, we will be discussing the power of moments, why certain experiences have extraordinary impact. We'll look for ways to make classroom moments more powerful, explore opportunities to raise the stakes for your students, and visit the Popsicle Hotline. Oh, and we'll talk about the soul-sucking force of reasonableness. On to the conversation. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and welcome to Vermont Ed Reads. We are here to talk books for educators, by educators, and with educators. Today I'm with Rachel Mark, and we'll be talking about The Power of Moments by Chip Heath and Dan Heath. Thanks for joining me, Rachel. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. I'm Rachel Mark. I live in the southern part of Vermont, and I am in my fourth year of working as a professional development coordinator for the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at UVM. Prior to that, I was a middle school teacher for 16 years in Manchester, at Manchester Elementary Middle School. And I'm also a mom. I've got three kids, an eight-year-old, a 12-year-old, and a 15-year-old. And um, we all live in, in sometimes happiness with our dog and my husband in Southern Vermont. Excellent. Thanks for joining me. I know you and I are very excited about this book, The Power of Moments by the Heath Brothers. I am excited about it. Um, let's just talk a little bit about what it's about. Um, the Heath Brothers uh, talk about defining moments and they describe them as meaningful experiences that stand out in memory. Yeah. So let's give some examples. I'm going to give a non-education example of a defining moment that just delighted me early on in this book in the introduction. So I'm going to turn to page 10. Um, this defining moment takes place at um, a hotel, actually. A, it's called Magic Castle, and it's in Los Angeles outside of Disneyland. Disneyland? Disneyland. Mm -hmm. So here, here's the description. Let's start with the cherry red phone mounted to a wall near the pool. You pick it up and someone answers, hello, popsicle hotline. You place an order and minutes later, a staffer wearing white gloves delivers your cherry, orange, or grape popsicle to you at poolside on a silver tray for free. I love this idea that if I went to a hotel and there was a cherry red phone and I got to pick it up and order my popsicle and it came out like almost livery service, I would be so delighted. I would never forget that. I um, I think one of the things that's so lovely about this book is that it's um, it's psychology, but it's also culture and sociology. And I love that the Heath brothers think about um, these parts of our behavior and our lives that are kind of overlooked and try to look at them really carefully and examine what's unique about them. Um, this interested me when it first came out because I have noticed some of the same sort of observations that they have about why are some things so special? Why are some moments more impactful and meaningful than others? So um, part of me was thinking, darn it, they beat me to writing this book. 
<laughs> but they're far more accomplished writers, um, and and I'm glad that they that they beat me to it. So the the this book is organized in such a way that it has two goals. One is to examine defining moments and what makes them memorable or meaningful, what helps them stick with us, and then the second goal is to help us create more defining moments so that we can improve our lives and the lives of other people around us. And so um, it's not an education book, right? Yeah, it's, it's a popular not. press book, but I'm thinking we can look at it through the lens of what makes a moment a defining moment, and then how can we create more defining moments in education? Right. Um, when you said that, it prompted me to look at the book and notice that it's, it's um, really suggested as a business and economics book. Um, I would also call it a psychology book and sociology because I think there's so much at play psychologically and sociologically. But as I read this, I read this as both an educator and the mother of children. And so I, I really thought, I, I have no frame as a business leader, um, but I could see so many applications of this book to education. Yeah, I could too. And um, my son has now left my nest. So I read it as an educator and as also somebody who just wants to have more memorable moments in her own life. Right. Yeah, as a human. Right. Me too. So let's look at what makes up a defining moment. And the first thing the Heath brothers go into is elevation. What do they mean by elevation? A few things stick out to me about their definition of elevation. Um, they describe elevation as uh, two things, building peaks and breaking the script. Um, and to me, the piece about building peaks was resonant. Um, I do think that we have moments that stand out more than others in our lives and that um, those moments must do something to us that's transformative. Um, they either provide for us a feeling, um, you know, in our hearts or some kind of fizziness in our brain chemistry. But I do know as I've lived my life that something happens to me when I think about certain parts of my life. And, um, I'd be concerned if that didn't happen for other people. So um, the, the piece about building peaks to me was really important. And um, one of the other stories that is, is, is important to me from the book is the um, story that comes from Hillsdale High, um, where teachers recognized that there were not enough kind of peaks for students in their high school experience. And a couple of really creative teachers developed an experience called the trial of human nature. Um, I'm not gonna describe that in detail, but it's essentially a um, kind of interdisciplinary and experiential learning experience that um, I believe was was introduced for juniors at this particular high school. Um, it's a public school in California. 
it became so popular that I think other teachers in the school started to feel perhaps um, a little let down. And so some other teachers developed then something called a senior exhibition. Um, and this person um, who is now the principal of this school named Jeff Gilbert talks on page 51 in a way about school that, um, that made sense to me. He said, school needs to be so much more like sports. In sports, there's a game and it's in front of an audience. We run school like it's a nonstop practice. You never get a game. Nobody would go out for the basketball team if you never had a game. What is the game for the students? Um, and that, that was something that I felt in my own experience as a teacher. I felt like, even for myself, for my own, um, I don't, you know, I don't want to say sanity, but um, I needed things to look forward to and moments to build up to and moments of performance that were both engaging and um, fulfilling for the student. And, and, and as a teacher, I found them fulfilling too. I just want to throw in there that this really resonated for me as a student because I remember in high school, I remember ninth, well, I don't, what I don't remember is ninth grade history because it was textbook worksheets and a, a teacher with a really droney voice. And it was the opposite of peaks. It was the flattest course ever, which made me think I was a terrible history student. But then I had Mr. Richardson and I had him for Russian history, which I loved. And I had him for AP um, world history and my most memorable high school experience or performance comes from his class where we had um, a debate. We were put on teams and I was in, I was Germany, team Germany, and we had to um, debate who, who started the second world war. And Germany's a tough person to be in that position, but I took that challenge and, um, yeah, and we had a panel of experts, and we got points, and um, I don't want to brag or anything, but I kind of won. <laughs> Germany kind of won that year. And I still think of that as so memorable because it was a peak. Um, we worked really hard towards it. We knew that there were these expert historians coming in, and um, it's. I still remember it. I, yeah. I still know more about world, the start of World War II than I do about any other point in history. That's a great example of um, building peaks in the experience of school. And I tried, but I could not think of many moments like that in my own experience in school, which may be why I'm so motivated to cultivate those moments for students now. Um, I thought a lot about how um, some of the work that you and I do with schools that involves using um, strategies and approaches around project-based learning complements this idea of building peaks and that um, the, the, the nature of project-based learning is that there's some authenticity to the work and hopefully some public performance and public product and that um, 
I, I have always felt like that's a really important element of project-based learning. It helped me to think about that, those aspects of, of PBL within the context of this book and how it is, it is about building a, a powerful moment. Exhibitions are often our powerful moments. This morning, I was at Leland and Gray um, with an engineer and somebody who worked in an architect firm, and we were giving feedback to 7th and 8th grade students on their um, designs for projectile launchers for battle physics. And this was one sort of peak, mini peak moment on their way to a larger peak, which is when they compete with students from Dorset School and Green Mountain Middle and High School when they their launchers go head to head to see who can hit the most targets. Right. Um, so we have many uh, other examples um, of schools doing really fabulous exhibitions where they build these peaks for students to show off. Do you right. have some others you want to share? I don't have a specific one I want to share, but it, what you're talking about makes me wonder what are the sort of conditions that are at play when we're building those peaks. And um, it makes me think about a few things. You know, as you and I have worked with some schools in the last year or two, um, I do think that there's an element of fun with this event and the, the peak event. And that um, we, we may be in danger of underestimating the importance of fun. Because I think that, it, though we don't want to put that at the forefront of our educational experiences and you know our assessments that is probably what makes some of these things so memorable right and the Heath brothers talk about two different element diff different aspects of peaks one is that they have sensory appeal that mm -hmm. makes me think about what you're saying with fun mm -hmm. right they appeal to our senses mm. and the other is that they raise the stakes right right and that was the piece that I was just thinking about with your example of the battle physics and, and students, um, you know, consulting with experts in the field is that there's a accountability and an authenticity to that experience. And, and so it does, they step up their game because there's, they raise the stakes. Yeah. So I, um, I definitely think there's something, you know, I almost wonder if, if we could, rewrite the description about exhibitions and the the meaning and purpose for them to acknowledge some of the ingredients from this book about that being a peak moment with sensory experience and raising the stakes and we have you know it reminds me of the example um, that came out of the school uh, that we both work with at MEMS where students presented to the select board about their findings for some research. And in your videos and your um, footage from that, I can remember them being dressed up and poised and uh, students talking about how nervous they were. And I thought about that and thought, I kind of remember that. It reminds me that so many of the things that are memorable or important to our students' lives are extracurriculars. You mentioned sports earlier. I think in a lot of communities, drama, the school play is a huge deal. And yeah. you have kids who do it year after year. Yeah. Um, or musical performance, right? And all of those things, you have to perform. You have an audience. The stakes are high. You're all in. Right. 
And kids are really passionately commit to that, right? right? And to all the learning, whether it's learning lines or choreography or um, learning whole musical pieces, right? There's a lot of learning that they have to do in order to show up on performance day. Right. It's reminding me about um, a blog post that I wrote about exhibitions, where I wrote about my own experience about exhibitions, and that um, it wasn't until I participated in an exhibition that I had some new insights into what is happening when we ask students to publicly exhibit work. And I learned two things. Um, When I had to do a public exhibition at the uh, Deeper Learning Conference at High Tech High in California, I can remember being nervous and worried. And um, I felt a little insecure because I was standing there sort of waiting for people to come up to me. And I thought um, the emotional responses that I was having are doing something to solidify that experience in my brain. And then the second thing I realized was when I was explaining that work multiple times to different people, I got better at describing my learning. And I actually was learning as I was talking. And so what I started out describing was something that I made with a group of people one, some of whom were complete strangers, in about 40 minutes. And at the beginning of, of my presentation and exhibition sharing, I was a little embarrassed about the quality of our work and, and pretty unclear about how we got to this particular visual. But by the end of that hour, I actually made sense of it in my own head and got a lot more clear about the different steps we went through in the process of this um, activity. So it was interesting for me as an adult to go through that and think, we, we think that, that we're, that's all practice up for that event, but, but it was actually during that event that I had some pretty significant learning too. I, I really love that. It reminds me of how we, we often think of performance of learning, but performance yeah. is often is, is learning, learning, right? Um, and it reminds me of your, um, the, you work with Floodbrook and their middle school students presenting their passion projects. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think how many of those kids maybe don't get it the first time they do passion projects. They may not do it very well. They might not spend their time wisely. Some of them absolutely do. But then through that performance, standing there for an hour and a half explaining their project to so many different people, they might have new learning, new insights that might lead to new skills and habits. Yeah, I I definitely agree with you. And that's another example of um, creating a moment that that has that memory and impact for kids. Um, And I think that that the way that those um, exhibitions happen for Floodbrook, uh, I just went to one in December, it does consider building a peak and raising the stakes because there's people there and when I've talked to students there they say yeah this made me work harder because I knew there were people looking and people watching 
So there's a quote from this section that I just think is so um, apt for schools. And I know even in the book, it describes schools, you know, with our schedules, our regular routines and schedules is rather flat. Mm. <laughs> um, and the quote I love uh, is, beware the soul-sucking force of reasonableness. And it's just a reminder that what's reasonable doesn't, it does not always lead to the most impactful or memorable learning right? That sometimes we have to be unreasonable and go out of our way to create peak moments. Not all the time, not every day, but sometimes we have to do the extra work or do the unreasonable thing to invite engineers and architects uh, into our school to give kids feedback or to take our kids out into the world um, right. to have a peak experience. Right. It, it, um, I'm finding this part on page 53 where the, the um, authors say, um, you know, most of our school experience and life experience is mostly forgettable and occasionally remarkable, and that the occasionally remarkable moments shouldn't be left to chance. They should be planned for and invested in. They are peaks that should be built. And, look, and if we fail to do that, look at what we're left with, mostly forgettable. So that, um, that's inspiring to me, to think that um, we should plan for peaks. Yeah. And when we, when we often, when we work with teachers on project-based learning, we ask them to think about that peak early on. How will kids exhibit? Who will the audience be beyond you? How will we make this meaningful work for them to do, real, relevant, meaningful work for them to do? Right. And when you launch in project-based learning, you're even building a peak to build investment and generate excitement. Or you could be utilizing the second thing they talk about, the power of moments, which is insight. So a launch could be a peak. It could also be a moment of insight. And um, I really love this section, even though I think it's trickier, it's harder for us to imagine. Um, where the Heath brothers talk about how when you, as a human, trip over truth, they call it, that it packs an emotional wallop. And so um, they give these examples, like these moments of discovery, these aha moments. One example that I remember is that um, they bring together all these professors with their syllabus, mm -hmm. and they realize um, that... Um, by looking at their syllabuses together, by examining them together, they realize how uninteresting and boring they are, right? Like they have this moment of insight where they're like, oh, right, this appeals to no one, right? And so then they go back and revise. And so instead of saying your syllabus stinks, they, they give them this opportunity to discover it on their own. They talk about though on page 105, they say there's a three part recipe for tripping over the truth. One is that you have this clear insight, it's compressed in time, and the audience discovers it by itself. As you were talking, I was thinking about those three ingredients, or the three-part recipe, um, and it made me think that perhaps when we work with adults, when we um, work with a group of educators or a group of leaders, and we facilitate a protocol, which you're famous for, we are 
conducting one of those three-part recipes to trip over the truth. And that um, the, and, and I'm sure it doesn't happen in every protocol, but in the best ones, we are compressing, you know, it's compressed in time and it's revealed through the process that there's a few really critical insights about some experience or some conflict or some system. One of my favorite um, protocols to do whenever I'm um, working with adults, but also with kids, I've done this with high school kids and with middle school kids, around equity and the way we treat people differently and status, is called liar's poker. And we it asks you to get a card that you can't see and put it on your head, uh, two to ace. And the higher your card, if you're an ace, a king, or a queen, the higher your status. So you pretend you're at a party and you're trying to talk to the highest status people. And really quickly, you end up with clumps. And, um, and so we do that for about 15 minutes. And then I ask people to put themselves in order without still not looking at their card and figure out where do you think you are. And almost always people get in pretty close order from two up to ace. And then we have a discussion. How did it feel to be a two? How did it feel to be an ace? How did it feel to be an eight? What do you think happened there? How does this relate to what you see happening in school or with students? And it really fosters a really rich discussion that allows people to trip over the truth of how inequity shows up in their setting. Right. And that's an that's a simulation, yeah. right? I mean, you're simulating some sort of social strata and um, and social experience that really happens. Like the brown eyes and blues, blue eyes experiment from so many years ago. Um, the other thing in the insight chapter that I think is more relevant, especially as we engage in proficiency-based education, is this idea of stretching for insight. And on page 122-123, um, the Heath brothers cite a study on how students respond to feedback that I found really interesting because so often we think, um, we know the research shows that if a kid just gets a grade, they don't even read the comments. Yeah, that I'm so glad you brought up this part. And so I just turned to page 122 and 123, um, where the Heath brothers describe um, the work of a psychologist and a study that they conducted in a, I'm going to call it a middle school. They call it a suburban junior high school. Um, but in this particular um paper by David Scott Yeager, he says there's a two-part formula. Anyway, David Yeager identifies a two-part formula in his research, and he says it's high standards plus assurance. And um, I think that that's really interesting because I, I definitely hear schools and teachers talk about having high standards and how important high standards are. I have yet to hear the word assurance. This reminds me so much of my podcast with Bill Rich talking about the culture code and sending this message of, we have high standards here. You're a member of this community. I believe you can meet those standards. And essentially that assurance is like, we've got high standards here and I'm certain that you can put in the work to meet them. Yeah, and that's what this this psychologist found in his research is that the um the teachers you know 
really gave deliberately different feedback in this um, test group. And the comments that the teacher gave to the, um, the test group were um, that high standards and assurance. One particular comment says, uh, I'm giving you these comments because I have very high expectations and I know you can reach them. So that was what the researcher called wise criticism. And um, almost 80% of the wise criticism students revised their papers. And in editing their papers, they made more than twice as many corrections as the other students. And so for the other students um, that received a generic note in the teacher's handwriting, the note said, I'm giving you these comments so that you'll have feedback on your paper which is hilarious. And in that case, about 40% of the students chose to revise their papers. So um, the, the finding is that that second note with the assurance um, is powerful because it, um, it really changes the behavior of the students. Right, and we know that um, in order for students to take feedback and use it well, it has to be clear, it has to be actionable, it has to be um, timely, right? They need to be able to use it right away, and that's the whole crux of proficiency-based education is that you get the feedback you need to, have, to gain that insight, to, have, to, to do the work you need to grow. Um, it reminds me of a story from something I was reading recently about proficiency-based education, which is a student goes to their teacher and says, you know, all year you've been writing this word on my essays and I just don't know what you want me to do. And the teacher says, well, what? And he says, vagu. <laughs> the word was vague, vague, of course. But, you know, like we have to, it has to be meaningful to the students. It can't just be meaningful to us. The feedback isn't for us. It isn't like we've done our job. We wrote on the paper. The feedback is for the student. And how do we make it actionable and intelligible to them? Right. As we're talking about this, um, the section is making more sense. I, I don't know why, you know, some part of me thinks that I, I got tired at this point in the book as I was reading, um, which does, does make me um, remember that as I read this book, I had wished it was shorter and I felt like it could have been accomplished in fewer pages. So that's this, this second part about um, insight was um was where I got tired in the book. Can we talk about the next section? Pride? We, we certainly can. Um, uh, so our next section, um, the next element, because it, as they point out, not all moments have all these elements. Right. And, and I think the thing about insight is that it's a really particularly, tripping over insight is a particularly difficult thing to accomplish in schools. We can't all be Mrs. Frizzle and the magic school bus, right? We don't have those powers. And that can feel like what it is. It's like you have to orchestrate at that level. But a good field, field trip can help uh, kids trip over insight. And I think about a project that I'm working with at MEMS, we're just starting to plan, which is that we hope kids will be able to discover um, germs, not just here that when you wash, don't wash your hands, you end up with germs on your hands and you could get sick, but to actually swab for germs and do the tests of what's it take? How many, how many germs does hand sanitizer get rid of versus 
washing your hands with just water versus washing your hands with soap and singing the happy birthday song. And so that's the kind of tripping over truth that we're hoping that they'll do there. Yeah. But let's move on to pride. This part was really meaningful to me. Um, There were a a couple of particular pieces. Could you, before you begin giving particular pieces, just describe what, um, when we say pride, what they mean? Gosh, I hardly remember. But um, I think we all know what pride is. And um, for me, it, it was their way of describing that within a moment of elevation, um, there's a piece that um, made you feel good. So it was not just important, but it um, gave you that validation. On page 139, they say, how do you make moments of pride? The recipe seems clear. You work hard, you put in the time, and as a result, you get more talented and accomplish more, and those achievements spark pride. You work hard, you put in the time, and as a result, you get more talented and accomplish more, and those achievements spark pride. Simple as that. That's doesn't sound simple. No, it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, they start though by not talking about moments of pride because on page 142, they talk about a moment of, uh, what's the opposite of pride of embarrassment that I've actually experienced. They talk about the kid who's told like, just don't sing your voice doesn't work. And I remember being in fourth grade and getting asked to leave chorus. Like suddenly I didn't belong. I don't think I sang again until I had an infant. Sorry, Jeannie. I know, it still pains me. Um, but th- So they start with the opposite of pride, those moments of exclusion where you're like sort of not told the opposite, not that you can get better at something, not like here's how we can help your, I mean, because let's just be honest, I, I don't have a fabulous singing voice. But um, they work, but the, the way that shuts you down for new learning. Right. And so they turn that, um, they turn that, kind of switch from that um, exclusionary kind of punishing um, selection to recognition and appreciation. Um, So this part was was fairly, in in terms of the context of the book, business-oriented because it talks about recognizing employees and... um, you know, perhaps that there are recognition programs within certain businesses and systems, and and that's not typical in our education systems. However, when I think about the MEMS Caring Day celebration and the opportunity students had to recognize um, and celebrate the empathy and kindness of members of our community, it felt exactly like, how do we recognize others? Exactly. This piece made me remember how important recognition is um, for teachers. And I um, was thinking about how I feel um, that sort of it's hard as a teacher to maintain sort of a positive outlook all the time. It's a hard profession and um, certainly you face a lot of challenges and keeping your morale 
high requires um, a resiliency that is hard to find. But I um, could really think so much about how much personal recognition and personal, um, what I started to think of as gratitude made a difference for me. Um, they talked in somewhere about this, about that there is, um, there's a difference in sort of recognition and in a program. So they begin to talk in the book about, um, how, how we can recognize people's contributions, um, on page 147. Um, it says recognition experts. On page 147, um, the, the authors say, in our own research, when we asked people about the defining moments in their careers, we were struck by how often they cited simple personal events. And here are some examples of people who are um, just describing some really simple praise, I would say, by um, a boss or a supervisor. And so what, what the authors of this book notice is that in these cases, the recognition is spontaneous. It's not part of your um, annual review and it's targeted at particular behaviors. Um, and what this then reflects on is a paper by some people that talks about how effective recognition makes the employees feel noticed for what they're done, they've done. And um, I really thought a, a lot about that noticing and that, um, and to me, that is um, such an important part of behavior and motivation. And um, I think about that in terms of education from both the an employee within the school level and a student level in the classroom. Um, and I remembered that I have kept some of my, my recognition over the year and I have never won any big awards or anything like that. But um, I have a file in my bookshelf that's a few inches thick that is basically everything I kept from my 16 years teaching. And it's pretty astounding to me that it is, you know, it could fit in one small shelf. And in there is a lot of forms. And um, I went back through it this morning and remembered that I have kept written thank you notes from people and handwritten notes. And um, as I went back through them, today, I remembered why I kept them. And those people said things like, um, you know, thank you for this person said, um, I want to take a moment to thank you for um, being a wonderful addition to our staff. I admire how you jump in, take risks and have experienced success. Um, another person, another note I found is, was mailed to me. And this was a, a, an interesting one for me to open because um, this was typed up 
and written in 1999. Um, and it was from the two um, principals, the principal and the assistant principal, who thanked me for coming to the holiday concert, giving up my time, and um, you know my commitment to students. I also have a file like that. And um, my favorite things in it are the handwritten notes from students. And, um, and I used to keep that file right on my desk when I worked as a school librarian, um, sort of in a place where if I needed a boost during the day, if I needed a moment of pride or recognition, I could remember why I did what, what I did, exactly. even in the tough moments. Right. Um, this piece about recognition made me automatically think about a little bit of a buzzword in culture right now about gratitude. And um, coincidentally, this morning, I read, skimmed an article that came through my inbox about using gratitude with students and about the um, both physical and emotional benefits of asking students in school to express gratitude, which I thought was an interesting idea um, because I don't see that fitting into any curriculum right? You know, is that, is that part of science? Um, and yet we know that there is, um, there's a, um, a two-sided effect to gratitude that the person who receives the gratitude has that moment of pride or, um, that moment of feeling good. But the, um, the even more interesting outcomes are that research shows that you benefit when you give the gratitude and that there's, um, you know, so many good endorphins and serotonin that go on in your body when you express gratitude. The piece that I was thinking about gratitude in schools was that one, it's not a panacea, right? This is not, if we ask kids to do gratitude journals, everything's going to be peachy. Two, I don't want this to become another um, thing teachers feel like they have to do. And so I thought about how could we embed that into some of our routines, some of our practices, so that we're just being more intentional about recognition. Yeah, I think it's really important to practice gratitude. I mean, it's been really important in my life, but I also think not all of our students come to us with families that practice gratitude. Mm -hmm. And if we want them to be grateful and thankful, and okay. if we want students to experience the win-win of gratitude, the win of somebody else gets to feel good and the win of I get to feel good when I am when I am grateful for somebody else, when I give that gratitude, then we need to give them opportunities to practice that. Yeah. I want to move on, though, because I feel like there are other ways that we in schools think about mild, um, pride. Mm -hmm. One is building in opportunities to um, experience milestones. And I think mm -hmm. that's especially important when we're doing project-based learning or something bigger that can feel um, endless, <laughs> that, that we build in these opportunities for checkpoints or milestones where kids feel like they're having progress. Um, and it reminded me of something that I know we all think about kids being really into, which is video games. That uh, one of the like appeals of video games is they have these levels and milestones where you get to feel good because you accomplish something. And so how can we replicate that good feeling you get by reaching the next level in education? Any thoughts about that? I, I can think of a few things. Um, 
your video game reference um, reminds me of some of the work that's happening in the state, in our organization, and in the country around badging and sort of digital badging. Um, our colleague Susan is is especially passionate about this, and that um, it doesn't necessarily have to gamify education, but that it does try to replicate that experience of um, of identifying a set of skills or activities that once you attain that, you know, there's a, there's a gold star. So it reminds me of that. Um, but it also reminds me of, um, something that's not really school based, but something that really interests me, which is about cultural rites of passage. And, um, we maybe don't have enough cultural rites of passage in our in our society that are non-religious. But this has been um, something that's been on my mind because of the age group that you and I typically work with, which is young adolescents, and um, that, that child coming to adult that, you know, happens around age 30. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, you know, we have an eighth grade graduation in our schools typically, but it's not terribly ceremonious and it's not necessarily a rite of passage. Yeah. It reminds me of like goal setting, right? And so, uh, right now I'm on Goodreads. I love Goodreads. And one of the things I love about it is I get to set a goal that's meaningful for me and keep track of how I'm doing, how many books I'm going to read that year. A year is a long time for young um, adolescents, but um, I used to use Goodreads with seventh graders and they would keep track of how much they read and set a goal for themselves. And that was really meaningful for them. I'm sorry, maybe it was eighth graders. Um, But it is like that. How do you track progress towards your own goals. It also reminded me of before and after photos and thinking about um, looking through Eli, my son's portfolio with him as he was graduating, moving towards graduating high school and looking back over his work that we had collected over the years. He was able to laugh and be like, oh, I remember when that was hard, Hmm. right? And there's something about looking back Hmm. and um, sort of noticing like, oh, I used to, I remember I'm having this long discourse about, I remember when algebra was hard and now it's not hard anymore. Yeah, And so it made me wonder about, um, you know, writing from the beginning of the school year versus writing at the end of the school year or art or anything that we do in school, really. You can compare um, an early draft to work that you right. do on down the road. Well, I, um, my, my thinking immediately jumps to what would be some of the ideal functions of a PLP, which would be that... Um, growth charting yeah. and that and that one of the outcomes of of doing that of collecting that work and reflecting on it would be to feel that sense of pride in the end yeah another thing they talk about in this um chapter that really struck me was this idea of practicing courage um and they cite dare and dares failure to prevent kids from using substances, right? And they say one of the reasons is that kids never get the chance to practice saying no to substances, right? Like they, there's all this education, but they never actually practice. They never go through the script. And that reminded me of one of my former students who did some research on hate speech and found that hate speech leads to hate crimes and she wanted to interrupt hate speech. And so 
she created this hate speech photo booth where you could practice what you would say if you heard somebody use a racial slur or say something homophobic. And so you might write on your speech bubble, hey, that's not okay. Because in the moment when you hear hate speech, it can be hard to know what to say. And so in a way, you were practicing courage by writing your script. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? And so it made me wonder, how do we give students an opportunity to practice courage, to stand up? I don't know. It made me think of um, Anna Nicholson's students going before the select board to advocate for a plastic bag ban, right? Which is something they mm. believed in strongly and they've collected petitions. They've done all this research about plastic bags and they had to practice courage to stand up to a bunch of adults and say, we think the town should ban plastic bags. The town did not ban plastic bags, but they were really impressed with what the students had to say. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And so how do we help kids practice moral courage, intellectual courage? I don't have a good answer to that either, but it's a question that really intrigues me. It interests me too. And um, my fear is that we don't do enough of it because of possible controversy. You know, I think that um, we're afraid to do things that will make people uncomfortable and kids uncomfortable. It reminds me of Christine Old students and how they did that work with adults of helping them explore their identities. And I, I can't help but think that had to have been a moment of pride for her students as they got to get up and teach the adults in their building about um, different identity groups and how they could think more deeply about their own identities and, and what that means for how they are in the school. Yeah, it, I'm looking back at this page about courage um, and it says on page 185, managing fear, the goal of exposure therapy is a critical part of courage. It goes on to say, but courage isn't just suppressed fear. It's also the knowledge of how to act in that moment. Um, so that that's an area of growth for us. Yeah. Of how to um, how to expose students to moments that require courage and develop the knowledge of how to act in that moment. Listeners, you can't see us, but Rachel and I are both smiling at this opportunity for new growth, and I hope you are too. Um, The last way that the Heath brothers define powerful moments is um, talking about connection. Uh, And this just made a lot of sense to me. Do you want to talk a little bit about what they mean by connection? Yeah, I think connection is, um, is possibly easier for our, our readers to understand. Um, so they say, as you know, there are moments of elevation, insight, and pride, but they're also social moments. They're most memorable because others are present and that moments of connection deepen our relationship with others. So, um, not only are these defining moments, but these are, these are social moments that provide a peak moment of connection. Um, and I, I, um... I wanted to push back a little bit on this and, and start to wonder if it had to be. And, I, and we do know that the authors of the book say that, that powerful moments don't have to have all these ingredients. So I thought, 
let's let's just be clear that there is the possibility that a moment could be a powerful, impactful moment and not a social moment. But the um, the type of moments they're describing in this are um, when these moments create shared meaning and um, connect us together. So I um, I personally am. Um, really cognizant of how important social connection is in my own life and how um, meaningful that is to my own learning. So this wasn't surprising to me, it was affirming. Um, but something that did surprise me um, was uh, a, some research that they describe about creating moments of connection. And um, it's from the research of this person Morton Hansen from UC Berkeley and it's um it's work related you know it's kind of business related he has a book coming out called great at work how top performers work less and achieve more and they describe his research on pages 216 to 219 but essentially he explores the distinction between purpose and passion Purpose is the sense you're contributing to others, that your work has broader meaning, and passion is the feeling of excitement or enthusiasm you have about your work. And this um, researcher was curious which would have the greater effect on job performance. Um, essentially, his research um, finds that purpose trumps passion. So um, it goes against some of what we've heard is as a cultural message that, um, he, you know, the authors say, essentially, we should not be saying, pursue your passion, but pursue your purpose. Um, of course, it's great to combine both, but when you can find meaning for your work, you, you know, you cultivate that purpose. It makes me think about relevance, about making mm -hmm. learning more relevant either to the real world, to kids' lives, right? That it feels more purposeful. Or if you're doing something for the, like on the um, engagement hierarchy, if you're doing something for the good of others, that's like the highest level of engagement, right? And so that makes me think about that, that purpose, that sense of purpose and connection to others and the good of our culture, say, um, or, or the good of your community. Um, but I'm also thinking back to when you talked about how school is really flat. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking about my own son, who could occasionally be a class clown. And I think when school got too flat and he didn't feel connected, he used humor to create his own peaks and to connect with his peers. Because mm. he was like, if nothing's happening here and I don't feel connected, I'm going to make my own fun. Right? And so... I, it just made me think about, like, it might cost him greatly. He might get in trouble. He might, you know, his grade might go down. But it was worth the payoff to him to have that connection with a classmate. Or, um, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a, um, I mean, certainly we can, when we talk about kids who are demonstrating a behavior like that, we often think it's about attention, seeking attention. I had never thought it about um, being a moment of connection. Yeah. And um, I have a tendency to be that kid sometimes. And I think for me, it is about connection. Yeah. That, that I am um, 
breaking the the protocol or breaking the rules to seek connection with other people. And that ties us back to the last section about like we want to be seen and heard. We want to be noticed, right? Yeah. All of us. I have been thinking about Cabot Leeds um, and service learning mm -hmm. and thinking about, um, I'm not sure who said the quote, but this idea that students should feel like if they don't show up at school, the place can't run without them. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be awesome? And at Cabot Leeds, where students get jobs, mm -hmm. they create these connections, whether it's with the other people that work in the cafeteria or with a specific teacher or with the student, uh, the younger student that they're mentoring or a reading buddy for, right? They create these really meaningful connections um, that, um, that increase their motivation and makes the school day more memorable for mm. them. Well, and there's such um, inherent purpose in that. Yeah. When they have those jobs, they feel like they have a meaning. They have um, they have a contribution yeah. that they need to make. This makes me think of personalized learning plans, too. And when those feel like they don't have purpose, they can fall flat for students. But also, how could we help kids build purpose into them for what they're learning? Yeah. I feel like there's a, real, a lot of opportunity there if we can... Um, let go the soul-sucking reasonableness of the daily school day Yeah, to make them really powerful, um, motivating uh, um, tools for learning. Yeah. Well, this book inspired me um, a great deal to push for these moments. And um, one of the things I'm working on right now is um, designing an experience for the eighth graders in three of our schools where they have this kind of elevated experience. And um, I'm not going to be the person following this through all the way, but I, I'm, I'm pretty invested in seeing this happen because I want this experience for our young, young people. In this case, it's eighth graders. Um, and I think there is that sense of connection built in there, that this is, I will find something that, that matters to me through this experience. Yeah. I hope. I can only hope. Listeners, we strongly recommend uh, you take a gander at this book, The Power of Moments. There's so much in here that um, is relevant to education and that can be used to build really meaningful moments for your students. And when you have those meaningful moments, please reach out to us at the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education. We'd love to hear more about them. Rachel, thanks so much for talking to me about this book. Thank you, Jeannie. I learned so much from you. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont's educators and students are reading. Thank you to Rachel Mark for appearing on the show and talking with me about the power of moments. If you're looking for a copy of The Power of Moments, check your local library. That's where I got mine. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests, and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit btebe.tedinstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at btebe.reads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont. Special thanks to the Manchester Public Library for hosting us today and to Audrey Holman, our incredible audio engineer.